Welcome to the Postcard Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Mikatel. After my conversation with artful baker author Cenk Semasoy last week, I wanted to dive a little deeper into Turkish food, so I contacted Robin Eckert, author of the new book Istanbul and Beyond. Publishers Weekly has named this one of the fall's top 10 cookbooks. Robin writes about food and travel in Asia and Europe for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Lonely Planet, and other publications. She also publishes the award-winning food blog Eating Asia with her husband, photographer David Hagerman. In this episode, we'll discuss how Turkey's diverse geography influences the diet of the different regions, and we'll also talk about what to eat in Istanbul and beyond. Now onto my interview with Robin. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So you have been writing about food for several years for the New York Times, Food and Wine, Travel in Leisure. What were you doing before this? I was, uh, before I started my blog, which is where I got my start in food writing, Eating Asia, um, I was working on a PhD in political science at UC Berkeley. And so what made you decide to make the, the switch to food writing? Um, I'd always been interested in food, um, but when I applied to my uh, dissertation program in the early 90s, um, it wasn't, you know, food writing wasn't really a career as such. You know, there, you didn't know of it as a career as people do now. And I knew that I loved to uh, write and research, and I loved China, and so um, I went into a PhD program in political science with a focus on Chinese politics instead. And then um, moved to Bangkok in 2002 uh, with my husband. He got a job there and uh, just sort of became, I mean, I'd always been into food and I'd always loved cooking. But when we moved to Bangkok, I just became a, aware of food in such a more uh, visceral way, I guess, uh, probably because of the street food scene there. And I just never seen anything like it. And I, I got a, I had a Thai teacher who uh, just was very into food, and we just ended up talking about food all the time. And I started seeing, you know, being aware of foods that, although Bangkok was much written about at the time as a food destination, I was eating things and experiencing things that you never saw written about. And I just thought, there's a lot here that you know could be uh, investigated and reported on. And at the same time, I was, um, I'd sort of lost interest in being in academia. Uh, I'd finished my dissertation research in China, and that was a really hard couple years that made me feel like I did never want to do academic research in China again, and that was my specialty. I'd also fallen in love with Turkey by that time. I'd visited at the end of the 90s, uh, and so was kind of more obsessed with Turkey than I was with China. I taught in, in, uh, as a graduate student instructor and found that I didn't really like teaching. And so it was just all of those things kind of came together at once. And I was, I was, turned, uh, I was a little past 40, and it was just like, you know what, I can finish my PhD so that I can have those three you know, letters after my name. A lot of people said, oh, you can't, you can't leave the program now. Uh, or I, you know, I'm getting older, and I can just drop it and do you know, what I really want to do with my life and get started on that right now and make a go of it. And so that I did. And quite successfully. 
And I think that's... Well, it took a while. Yeah. It took a while. Not overnight success. I think very few no. people have that. But I think it's quite brave that you, you made that decision, that, you know, you've put all of this time in for for your degree. You could have easily gone into that, but you decided to switch and, and follow your passion. So It was hard to walk away from the degree, but at some point you just say, what's the point? Or I did anyway. I imagine, yeah. And I read that you took a food writing class by a Bon Appetit editor who advised that we should give into our obsessions. Um, is that something that has just resonated with you ever since? Yep. Absolutely. That was in, we were living in Vietnam by um, 2005, and I took a food writing class with, um, oh gosh, the name escapes me now, but that was one thing she said, and I actually wrote it, you know, she said, given to your obsessions, um, they'll, you know, great stories will come from it or something like that. And I wrote that on an index card and I put it on my bulletin board and I don't have a bulletin board anymore, but I still have that index card that I wrote that, you know, her advice on. And um, we moved to Malaysia like in August of 2005 and I started the food blog and just really uh, that was all about my obsession with Malaysian street food. And her advice has done, you know, done me well since. And you're currently on a book tour for your very gorgeous cookbook, Istanbul and Beyond, Exploring the Diverse Cuisines of Turkey. And you worked on that with your husband. Why did you write this book and how did you guys research it? Oh, gosh. Um, the book is, you know, really a culmination, um, but hopefully not the final product, of um, sort of a love and of, I guess, an obsession that we've had with Turkey and its people and its food since we first visited in 1998. We were living in China at that time. Uh, I was working on my dissertation research and he was, um, David was working a corporate job. And we went to Turkey. We had three weeks vacation. We had uh, award miles. It was the middle of winter, and the award miles would get us to Istanbul. And we'd never been before. Didn't have any guidebooks. Didn't really have any idea what to expect. But we're just blown away. Blown away as you know, I think most people are who go to Istanbul for the first time. I've never met someone who's not blown away by Istanbul. And um, spent three weeks, a week in Istanbul, two weeks driving around the country. Um, fell in love with it. And when we left on the airplane, I, I said to Dave, I don't know how and I don't know when, but Turkey's going to be a big part of our lives someday. And we moved back to to Berkeley um, about eight months later. And um, when I was when I should have been working on my dissertation, I started studying Turkish at UC Berkeley and put a lot of effort into that. And we continued to visit annually as his annual vacations would allow for the next few years. And then we moved to Bangkok in 2002 and set Istanbul, Istanbul and Turkey aside um, so that we could get to know our new home region and returned to Turkey for the first time in eight years in 2010. By then, he was a freelance photographer and I was freelancing as a food and travel journalist. And um, just immediately, as soon as we got in the taxi and were driving along, the Bosphorus felt that incredible pull that I sort of equate it with how do you you know explain why you love someone. It's just this, this attraction, you know, and, um, and then decided at that time, because we had the freedom and we had the time, uh, to, to make that sort of decision. We said, you know, let's devote some time to Turkey and, and do something here. And the idea for the book came about, um, six or eight months later when we were on the Black Sea, uh, during anchovy season and, um, we're eating, 
foods that we had never encountered in Turkey before, even though we'd probably traveled a total of three or four months there by then. Uh, we were eating cornbread. We were eating um, anchovies dipped in cornmeal and pan fried. We were eating collardy type greens, and um, we thought, you know, well, if we if we're encountering this this new to us food here, what what might we find in other parts of Turkey um, that most foreigners and a lot of Turks even don't travel to? And so that was really the the nub of the idea for the book, and then um, worked on it for the next five years. So before your first trip to Turkey, what did you think the food would be like? And then what surprised you when you got there? I really had no idea. Um, I just had no idea of Turkey as a place. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not a travel snob because I remember when I was an ignorant traveler, you know, I don't think I was even aware of Islam when we traveled to Turkey, we didn't know it was Ramadan when we went. Um, and I, you know, I knew nothing of the culture and I knew absolutely nothing of the food. I had never eaten in a Turkish restaurant. I don't know. We just, we just sort of went, um, what surprised us when we got there, um, pudding. I remember eating a lot of rice pudding with a burnt top. Um, I remember eating like manta, manta, um, the sort of you know, Turkish ravioli, tiny ravioli and yogurt sauce with um, chili uh, sizzled butter drizzled over the top. I had never had anything like that that blew me away. Um, Everything surprised me because I just, I had no expectations. I think that's always the start of a good trip. No expectations, up for anything. Um, Absolutely. I'd like to dive deeper into Istanbul, but first, could you give us a snapshot of Turkey, the different regions, and how the geography has influenced the food there? Um, I will. I'll focus on the regions that I feature in the book. So, we focused on the eastern half of Turkey and decided to do that fairly early on in the process. We basically drew a very um, rough line from Sinop, which is a port uh, town on the Black Sea coast, south to the province of Hatay, which used to be part of Syria and borders Syria on one side and the Mediterranean on the other. And so we uh, basically, you know, you can think of a clockwise journey starting in the middle of the Black Sea coast and going to the borders of uh, Georgia, Armenia, Iran, and Iraq, and down south bordering Syria, and then circling back up to central Anatolia. And... um, the way that the way that the book came about was through our initial um, road trips in that region, in that part of Turkey. We did everything by road, um, and I was just really literally observing out the car window and writing in my notebook all the the, ge- the topographical and climactic changes as we drove, because Turkey is such a small landmass compared to the United States, but it has as much topographical variation. So you can sort of imagine if you took the USA and you smushed it west to east into a, a tiny, you know, a much smaller place, but it still has a desert and mountains and all this. And so, you know, you can be in on the Black Sea coast in Turkey, which is much like the Pacific Northwest, and in six hours you will be in a completely different topography and climate. And so we were driving and I was taking notes and um, then we were obviously observing and and experiencing what people are eating. And it struck me maybe after our first or second trip for the book that 
to a degree to which an American, or at least this American, me, could never have imagined uh, what people eat is determined by where they live and the topography. Uh, so, for instance, on the Black Sea coast, it is, as I said, it's lush, like the Pacific Northwest. It uh, rarely snows except for at higher um, sea levels. It's um, very rainy. And so it, it's a year-round growing season. And so you have things like uh, leafy greens, collard, kale, uh, very um, tough spinach, fleshy spinach, leeks that grow hip-high, um, Corn is grown there, and corn is a huge part of the diet, dried corn, um, whole kernels, cracked corn, uh, cornmeal, corn flour, um, and uh, fish, obviously, because it's a coastline. So much of the animal protein in the diet is fish. And, you know, we tend to think of, oh, in Turkey, they eat a lot of lamb or mutton. Well, they don't on the Black Sea because... You know, sheep don't graze there. And in fact, a lot of Black Sea people will tell you the smell of lamb makes them ill. And then if you drive um, east towards the Georgian border and you get to the northeast, which is our next, the next region in my book, it's uh, very lush, high plateaus, which are perfect for grazing cows. Um, wealth is measured by, you know, the number of cows you have. Um, and so beef is a huge part of the diet. There's a little bit of uh, mutton eaten there, but not much. It's, it's all beef, uh, cow's milk, uh, dairy, um, cheeses made from cow milk, uh, a cheese called gravier, which is very much like Emmental, uh, and another called uh, kashar, which is kind of a, a mild cheddar that ages well. And then you drive south, maybe six hours, and you hit Van and Hakkari provinces, which are Kurdish, pro- Kurdish provinces in the southeast, bordering Iran and Iraq. The topography, again, changes dramatically. It is uh, jagged, high, you know, high soaring peaks covered with snow most of the year, uh, jagged uh, foothills, rough terrain, and cows cannot graze on that terrain because they are you know, huge animals on spindly legs. So mutton and goats can traverse this terrain very well in pasture. And so suddenly you see quite a lot of lamb in the diet, and um, not lamb, but mutton, and sheep milk, and goat milk. Um, there's not a lot of arable land, uh, and so foraging is a huge part of um, the cuisine there. And in the spring, villagers will take to the foothills and literally forage, I mean literally tons of uh, wild herbs and greens and dry them and eat them in the winter in soups and stews and pickle and um, salt brine them to uh, add to a cheese, a very famous cheese called oatly paneri, which is made from the milk of the sheep and goats who graze on those same greens. Um, so it's, it's a very, you know, these very tight little um, locavore uh, type of eating that isn't locavore because it's it's being rediscovered or is trendy, but because that's just how it's always been. Um, moving west again, you get to the southeast, um, Diyarbakir, Shanli Urfa, the home of Urfa pepper, um, and Diyarbakir provinces, uh, partly Kurdish, um, some Arab influence. And uh, people are eating uh, very spicy food. It's the home of Urfa pepper. Uh, you start to see pomegranate molasses because the climate is supportive of that. Lots of grape molasses. There are a lot of uh, vines cultivated there that were originally planted by Armenians. Uh, Armenians lived there until the early uh, 1900s. 
And then you travel further uh, west and a bit south to Hatay province, which borders uh, Syria and used to be part of Syria. It's a Mediterranean province. um, So you suddenly you see lots of olives, olive oil, um, tomatoes, uh, chili peppers, um, and pomegranates. And so this is really where you start to see lots of pomegranate molasses in the food and tahini. And then um, the last uh, area that I look at is central, north central Anatolia, and that would be about seven hour drive, eight hour drive north of Hatay, that Mediterranean province. And this is really where you find the food that perhaps if you don't know Turkey very well, you think of this is what Turks eat. So lots of lamb, lots of grains, lots of legumes. Um, this is the home of the chickpea. Um, lots of hummus. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Love, lovey. So yeah, I mean, it's very, it's a, just a very incredibly locavore type of eating. And why did you decide to focus on the Eastern side for this book? I'm guessing there's probably a part two coming out in the future. <laughs> um, I wanted to, um, I just wanted to, because we were finding foods uh, that were so new to me, um, because a lot of people who visit Turkey uh, spend time in Istanbul, on the Aegean, on the Mediterranean, perhaps in Cappadocia, the home of you know Tufa fairy castles and medieval underground cave cities and balloon rides, um, and then they don't seem to go further east. And I really wanted, I mean, this is kind of maybe going back to when I was in Bangkok and I'm seeing foods that you know, I've never read about, even though so much has been written about food in Bangkok, you know, a lot by the time I started this book had been written about Turkey and about Turkish food and Turkish travel articles. And I wasn't seeing any of these places in those articles. And I'm, I guess I'm drawn to maybe the less investigated places or foods. And also, um, we just wanted to highlight, you know, Things that don't get attention, Kurdish food, um, Kurdish cities, um, these places, borderlands. I mean, I, I think borders are incredibly interesting. Uh, and so we just decided to focus on the part of Turkey that isn't really thought of as the place you go to visit, but yeah. you should. And your and your book includes recipes that have not been printed before in English, right? I yeah, I believe so. I mean, I've searched the internet. I don't find them in English. Okay. Um, now, going back to Istanbul, could you share a little bit about the history and how Istanbul's location has allowed for the fusion of different cuisines? So Istanbul was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, um, and it was, as such, um, a very busy trading port. And so cooks in Turkey, um, in uh, sorry, in Istanbul, had access to ingredients from all over the Ottoman Empire, um, from Persia, um, from the Balkans, um, from the Caucasus, Caucasus, and from uh, Northern Africa. Um, and then also in Turkey, in, in Istanbul, in addition to this mix of ingredients, you know, at any time of the year, um, you had palace cooking. Uh, Topkap Palace had thousands of cooks. Um, Its kitchens, which were recently opened, I believe, have something like 16 um, 
gigantic uh, stoves with chimneys coming out the top of the palace. And all these cooks had to do every day was think of ways to please the emperor, um, coming up with new new foods, uh, variations on old foods. Um, so, for instance, before cane sugar or beet sugar came to Turkey, uh, people cooked with um, – they sweetened things with fruit molasses. And when sugar first came to Turkey, it was a very expensive ingredient, and so – only the cooks in the in Topkapi Palace had it, and so they were creating things like these amazing layered syrupy sweets that we associate with Turkish cuisine. Um, they were uh, taking, you know, what had been flatbreads um, that have been eaten in Anatolia forever, and um, making these doughs into incredible thin pastry sheets, yufka, or you know what we know as phyllo, also. And uh, making sweet and sweet borax and savory borax, uh, savory borax, meat borax with things like raisins and uh, pine nuts and all of these kind of warm uh, Silk Road spices like allspice and cinnamon. Um, it was just a very lo- luxurious cuisine um, that could only have come about. Uh, if a cook, if the cooks had access to ingredients from all over this empire that stretched over most of, you know, a lot of the world, and then, you know, of course, not everyone was eating palace cuisine. You also had stuff going on outside the palace. Um, Istanbul uh, was a city, and so uh, there were people on the go, people that needed a quick bite, and so street food has a long history in Istanbul. Uh, fish sandwiches. Um, fishermen actually used to sell the sandwiches from their boats, um, and simit and, um, chickpea pilav, you know, carts with mounded with buttery rice pilav and, um, mixed with chickpeas and pieces of chicken on top. So that's, you know, that's a very Istanbul thing too, street food. And then on top of that, uh, when offices started, um, opening on the European side of the city, uh, and, you had suddenly a lot of office workers, people who could not go home for lunch, but needed a very tasty uh, and um, cost-friendly uh, way to eat in the middle of the day. Um, that's when you started to see locanta, uh, which is from the Italian word locanda, uh, and uh, esnaf locanta, work, working men's canteens, basically tradesmen's canteens, uh, were places that um, they could go and get a meal like grandma would make, um, but in a public setting and at a decent price. And these places are still dotted all over Istanbul. You know them by the steam table. Um, Dishes are served from a steam table. And I know that the first time I went to Istanbul and popped my head in one of these places, I thought, steam table, no way, I'm not eating at one of these places. But in actuality, um, these places, uh, which are run by men, always, um, and the men the cooks are men, uh, serve dishes that are really, you know, great for a steam table. They are soups and stews and, you know, slow cooked dishes. And you could imagine, um, dishes like, uh, cura fasulie, which are, uh, white beans and tomato sauce kind of simmering very slowly away on the back of grandma's stove. Well, instead they're just on a steam table at a Nesnaf Lokanta. And these places are still around. Um, they're everywhere and it's where people eat, uh, at lunchtime. And this is, the menu is decided that day based on 
um, yeah, whatever's in season. Exactly. Or, okay. Uh, do you have yeah, any? I, do you have any favorites that you would recommend for somebody visiting? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, I would um, send people to Hyvore, which is an Esnaf Locanta just off Istiklal Jadesi that serves Black Sea food, um, just like you'd have it on the Black Sea. Uh, and I would send them to Lades, uh, which is also uh, off Istlal Jadesi, but closer to Taksim Square. It's a very um, Hyvore is a little more like the decor is a little more contemporary. Lades is very old style. Um, the you know these sort of like butter yellow walls and white tablecloths. Um, you know, sort of not upscale, but sort of old style gentleman gentleman's place like, and. Um, it's been around forever, and I, I did um, feed. I did include a couple recipes from Lades in the book, and spent a morning in their kitchen, which is on the third floor. Um, those would be two places that I would definitely recommend people go. And I'd love to go back to street food for a moment. Um, what are some of your favorite street foods, and when are people eating these? Where you mentioned the fish, what else are what else are people eating on the street? Well, first of all, I qualify by saying that even though Istanbul is touted as an amazing street food city, I don't think it's that great a street food city. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's There are some nice foods, um, but I don't think that you go to Istanbul to eat street food. Simit is great. People are eating that um, all day long. If you can find a fresh one, um, it's great. But Could you explain the- that, what that is for somebody who doesn't know? Sure. It's a we call them Turkish bagels. It's um, a bread ring, usually sesame coated, sometimes sesame seed coated. Sometimes it's braided, and sometimes it's just you know a, a literal bread ring. And hot out of the oven, they're great. Um, they're always sold from carts. Um, if you get a fresh one, it's wonderful. But too many sold on the street are not fresh. Um, there are just a few bakeries around that still make them. So if you can get one from a bakery, I like um, toast, which is basically grilled cheese. It is so ubiquitous in Istanbul that I don't think I even noticed it for the few first few times we went. You can get toast on a ferry. You can get it from a buffet, buffet which are sort of corner kiosk type, 7-Eleven type places. Um, you can get a, you can get a toast um, at, you know, at stands by the ferries. You can get a toast in cafes now. And a toast ranges from very basic, like two pieces of bread with some mild cheese inside and pressed in a panini-type press, to more elaborate. Some of the buffets have an array of ingredients uh, in a display case, and you can choose what you want in your toast. So you can get mild cheese, and you get a spread of pepper paste, and you can get some roasted chilies in there. Um, and I'm just a sucker for grilled cheese, so I I like t- a toast. Where can and- you get the best uh, well, the classic is Bambi, which is uh, a toast chain. And um, I think the original store, if not the original, one of the oldest stores is up near Taksim Square. Um, and, yeah, it, they're open late night all day. Um, and then um, another one is um, there's a good toast at uh, the cafe just as you exit the ferry terminal in Kadikoy. Uh, and then nowadays, I mean, sort of more, you know, upscale hipster cafes are serving toasts, and there's nothing wrong with a really finely made grilled cheese on good, good bread. So okay. I'd go for that, too. Um, if you could design the perfect weekend for somebody visiting Istanbul for the first time, 
where where should they go for the sites and and for food? Okay. So let's say you arrive on a Friday. Um, you have a Friday evening. You should go to a place called Lale, which is in Galata, and go to the rooftop and have a drink. That's a nice way to start the weekend. Um, the view is gorgeous. And I guess maybe Friday night, uh, I might just walk around in uh, Karakoy, uh, in that area, Galata Bridge, um, get out and do some walking, and I would get a fish sandwich for dinner, not from the bobbing boats on the Emanonu side, because those are not good, but across the Galata Bridge from the vendors in front of the Karakoy Fish Market. They make a really nice fish sandwich. And what you do is you want to ask for a double, so, which is double, which means um, same amount of bread, double filet, so that you get the most amount of fish to bread ratio. And um, then I would wander up to um, probably the, the streets around um, Istiklal Jadesi, off of Istiklal Jadesi, where there are various bars, um, you know, and have a drink. And you sort of have to have, before you go back to your hotel, you have to have um, an Islak burger, which is wet burger. Um, this is a hamburger where the buns have been soaked in a sort of sauce and it's put in a steam case. And it sounds uh, awful. Um, it's kind of, it's a little bit drunk food, um, but it can be tasty if you're in the right state of mind. And I just feel like it's it's something you have to experience if you're in Istanbul. Um, on Saturday, I would get up and I would have um, a nice breakfast. Uh, your hotel probably serves a really good breakfast. But you can go to... Uh, um, Van Kavalta Evi, which is uh, translates to Van Breakfast Salon in Jihangir. Uh, it is um, a, an accessible place that serves the Van breakfast from Van province uh, near near Iran, near the Iranian border. Uh, Van is known for its amazing breakfast because of the cheese that's made in Van, the Oatly Paneri herb cheese. Um, you'll get something... Um, that I call in the book Toasty Scrambled Eggs, which is uh, toasted flour cooked even toastier in butter with eggs added. Um, the usual menamen, which is eggs in chunky tomato sauce. Um, other cheeses from around Turkey. Um, kaimak from Van, which is uh, the cream that's lifted off uh, steaming milk, the surface of steaming milk. And then... Um, with Von Honey over it. It's just basically a, a breakfast meant to hold you all day. That said, um, you should um, walk around some more and try to fit in another lunch, <laughs> a lunch um, at either Lades, um, the, the Esnaf Locanta, the working men's canteen that I mentioned. And lunch will go as late as two or three, so you can go to these places later. Or at Hyvore, the Black Sea place that I mentioned. And maybe dinner that night is for one of um, the restaurants in Istanbul where chefs are doing interesting things with uh, Turkish artisan ingredients. So I really like Nicole, which is at the top of Tom Tom Suites Hotel in uh, Tom Tom uh, neighborhood. Um, the chef, Aylin uh, Yazajaolu, uh, trained in France, and she's actually a pastry chef, but she does other cooking too, obviously. And she just does really wonderful dishes with uh, featuring ingredients like lo local ingredients like pekmez or grape molasses, um, local tahini, local cheeses, uh, pomegranate molasses, and those sorts of things. 
And then Sunday, um, I guess you're probably going to want to do breakfast, but I'd be more likely to skip breakfast and head out uh, to uh, have some tea by the water. Um, you can sit over in Kadakoi. There's a nice cafe um, by the ferry terminal. And then I'd go nose around uh, the Kadakoi market, uh, which has all kinds of uh, wonderful stores. Um, there are places where you can buy cheese to take home and have it vacuum-packed. Cheese is from all over Turkey. There is a pickle shop, and pickles are very much part of Istanbul culture, and you can go have a actually a glass of pickles. You can select your pickles, and then you eat them from a glass in the shop, and then you drink the juice. It's very good for you. Uh, and then I would probably go to Halil, which is a great place for lahmacun, uh, which is... You know, again, we call it Turkish pizza, but it's basically a crispy flatbread spread with a spicy lamb paste, and you eat it with parsley and a little lemon juice. And that is right at the edge of Kadıköy Market. It's one of my favorite places, and I think that'll do you. Yeah, for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of good eating. Uh, would you recommend that people go to the Grand Bazaar, or is that something? Um, I. You know, I guess architecturally, it's great. Um, and there are still some great spots there, I guess, to buy spices. I sort of tend to avoid it just because a lot of it now is really touristy. And if you go to the Kadikoy market, I mean, presumably one of the reasons you're going to the Grand Bazaar is to taste cheeses and to buy spices and maybe to buy coffee, although I don't think Turkish coffee is the best. Um I would go to Kadikoy Market. It's wonderful. You can take a ferry right to Kadikoy. And it is um, a number of streets and blocks lined with all these stores that sell exactly what is sold in the Grand Bazaar, uh, except it's not for tourists. It really is for people who live in Kadikoy and around Kadikoy. What kind of spices should we buy? Well, you want to buy all of the bibers. Biber means pepper. So pull biber is Pool means crushed, so crushed red pepper flakes. You want to, if you go to these stores, you will see a bunch of uh, bags labeled Pulby Bear, and they'll be sort of mild to spicy. So basically, you want one that is um, has a nice flavor and is to the spice level that you like, but there should also be some flavor. And then you want to buy Urfa Biber, which we call Urfa Pepper. Um, it's also called Isot, because Isot is the name of the pepper uh, in Turkish. Uh, you should buy some uh, ground chili. Um, think of it as cayenne. Um, Kermes biber, red pepper. Um, you should buy some mahlep, which is the ground uh, kernel of a type of wild cherry. Uh, it's likened sometimes to vanilla. It has a very a scent that's lovely and warm and hard to describe, but it's really nice in baked goods and uh, is essential for some baked goods. Uh, and I use it in a recipe in the book. Which and one? you might, um, the um, Syriac uh, spiced bread. Okay. It's a it's a yeasted bread that has all these nice spices. And then this, this malab just adds a certain something. And then if, yeah, try to buy some mastic, um, which are um, the crystallized resin from a type of tree, uh, originally from Chios in Greece, but now also cultivated on the Cheshme Peninsula in Turkey and the Aegean. And this is a piney resin that um, is added to ice cream, vanilla ice cream, and also to breads. And it's kind of like, I guess it's like you either like it or you don't, but um, 
it's it's a really it's a very um, particular flavor that is uh, really central to uh, Greek sweets in Istanbul. Do you have a favorite region in Turkey? Oh, that's really hard. I I love seafood, so I love the Black Sea coast. Um, I love chilies, so I love Hatay province and um, its food. And just sort of overall, I'm really drawn to Van and Hakkari, um, those two Kurdish provinces in the southeastern corner of the country, both for the food um, and the amazing topography. I mean, Hakkari is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And for just the incredible warmth of Kurdish people. Um, I mean, Turks and Turkey is known for its hospitality and justly so. It's one of the most welcoming places you'll ever go. And then, you know, going to those provinces, I was, you know, I was once again bowled over by the welcome. It was just, it was just even more and even bigger and even warmer. It's just a, a really lovely place. What memories have really stuck with you from that, that from that place? Um, probably our trip to Hakkari in t- spring of 2015, which was our last research trip for the book. We had wanted to go to Hakkari since we started the book, really since we started researching the proposal in 2011. But because of um, the PKK uh, and the um, war with the Turkish uh, government and the Turkish army, it hadn't really seemed safe to go there. We were traveling entirely by road. We always rented a car and it just didn't seem safe to drive to Hakkari. And so... Finally, um, in the spring of 2015, our last trip, uh, which was about a month, month and a half before the election, um, things were good. The peace process um, between the Turkish government and the PKK was going very well. Um, It was looking very positive for the election, for um, the Kurdish party to get a place in parliament, to get enough votes to do that. the Southeast felt very peaceful, very happy, very um, optimistic. And so we were in Van province, which is just um, north of Hakkari, and a Kurdish um, chef who I you know, had helped me a bit with, with um, our research said to me, well, if you think the, the milk is good here and the cheese is good here and the food is good here, you really need to go to Hakkari. And it seemed the right time to do it. And so at the end of April 2015, we drove south to Hakkari. It was about four and a half hours to Hakkari City. And um, I mean, it was just, I was blown away by the beauty of the place, these incredible jutting peaks, you know, still snow covered. And then, you know, Below them, these deep, just emerald green valleys, and um, it was very pristine. Um, there's been little development there. Um, hillsides covered with, you know, very steep hillsides covered with wild thyme. Hakari is known for its wild thyme. And more than that, I mean, Hakari City is not very attractive at all, but it was so, the welcome was so immediate and um genuine. I mean, we arrived and just walked around to orient ourselves. And within, I think within two hours, we had been invited to a Kurdish wedding. We had been invited to a baker's house for lunch. Um, We had, you know, someone else had said, come out to my village. And uh, we spent only five days there. And it was just an incredible five days. We learned so much. 
and we saw so much and we spent time with so many lovely people and we left with this plan to go back um, three months later in August. Um, we'd been invited to join someone on their Yaila, which is a the place, the high summer pasturing area for sheep. Um, and then the, the election happened in June and the Kurdish party uh, won its seat in parliament and uh, then there was an explosion near near the border with uh, Syria uh, in Shalniyafa province in July, and the government blamed the PKK, and you know, and then the peace process fell apart, and and that was that, and we can't really go back now. That sounds heartbreaking. That obviously all that's that's happening there. Um, I'm so interested in people inviting you to their wedding and all of that. Were they just very curious and coming up to you? How did you meet these locals? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the way that we did our research was we sort of let the food lead us wherever it did. Um, food, it's been said before, food is a great entree to culture, but it, it really and truly is because it is, it is unthreatening and is nonpolitical and everyone consumes it. Um, and so, you know, sort of our modus operandi, when we arrived in a town, we would walk around and suss out, uh, you know, if there were any restaurants we wanted to check out, uh, if there was any markets we needed, we wanted to check out to start getting a bead on local ingredients. Um, and then we would always go into bakeries, uh, tra- traditional wood-fired bread bakeries, which are a big thing still in eastern Turkey, which are... Um, places where obviously bread is made in a wood-fired oven, but also places where people bring their dishes to be cooked uh, in these wood-fired ovens. They pay like the equivalent of 30 cents to the baker. The baker tends the dish, and then they come and pick it up and take it home, usually with some bread. And so, for instance, uh, we were wandering around. We saw a, a bread bakery, and we walked in, and there were two women making um, these this sort of uh, flatbread filled with uh, caramelized in butter uh, flour. And I had heard about this, and I and I this particular type of bread, it's particular to Hakari, and I said, oh, you know, you're making this dish. And then we got to talking, and, oh, they're making the dish, they're making these breads because uh, someone's sister is getting married in two days, and, you know, why don't you come to the wedding? I mean, this is a very, it's not unusual. I mean, if if a Turk from Istanbul walked in and started chatting them up about their breads, they would invite the Turk too. Um, like I said, it's a very, it's just a, a sort of a welcoming place in a way that, you know, we can't imagine. It'd be like walking down the street in, you know, Chicago and someone invites you in for lunch. It's just not going to happen. Right. And, <laughs> and why are people still bringing their food to be cooked in the oven? Is it because they don't have an oven at home or because there's something about that type of oven that makes, that cooks it better. It's because they don't have an oven at home. Okay. Um, um, like if you go to the black sea, uh, which is a relatively more developed part of Turkey, uh, you don't find many of these bakeries anymore. Um, and if you go to say Cappadocia where there used to be quite a lot of them, you don't, it's relatively, you know, relatively more, uh, affluent area. Um, and you don't find many of these bakeries anymore. People, they, first of all, they don't so much bake their own bread anymore. And second of all, they all have ovens to bake their, you know, their givetch, which are a type of clay pot casserole in. Same with Istanbul. 
Um, but you go out east and like a lot of people don't have ovens in their homes. They may have gas burners, um, but not ovens. And so they can, you know, if there's a bakery around, they, they would can just take their dish there. What's been your best meal in Turkey? A meal that's very memorable for me is um, a meal that we had in Hakkari, that Kurdish province in the southeast. Um, we went into a traditional wood-fired bread bakery, and uh, the owner of the bakery invited us to his house for lunch the next day. And we went, and his wife, who is a writer uh, and a journalist, had prepared this incredible meal um, of many dishes, and their older son was there, who was 19. And it was it was about the food, because the food was delicious, but it was also just about the company and um, that sort of bonding over food where you just really learn about people who are living and have lived a life so different than your own. We talked about everything from um, the herbs and greens that are foraged in Hakari and where's the best place to find them to um, the dishes that were on the table to um, their experience of living uh, in Hakari when, uh, when urban when the war between the PKK and the government came to urban areas and how frightening that was. And it was just a really, in every possible way, it was an amazing meal. Is there anything else you would like to add about your book or your travels or book tour? Um, I'll be back in March uh, for more book tour events. We'll be back in the USA. Uh, I have a website um, for the book and events, istanbulandbeyondcookbook.com. But one question, one thing I do want to add is people are asking me, is it safe to travel to Turkey? Or they're saying things like, gosh, I wish I could go to Istanbul now. It's too bad that you can't. And while it's true that it's difficult now because of uh, the visa thing, they're not giving out visas to Americans applying in America. uh, I would say that it is completely safe to go to Istanbul. If you would travel to Paris or Brussels or Barcelona, you should consider going to Istanbul if you're in a position to get a visa, and I hope that situation will be resolved soon. Um, please go, because people are hurting because of the lack of tourism. Um, it, it, it saddens me to see friends uh, in you know with restaurants and shops and stuff hurting for business because people think they can't go. It's a, still a wonderful place, and it's as safe as any other place in the world. So go. It's great. I agree 100%. Um, and where can people find out more about you, Robin? Um, they can find out more about me at robineckhart.com and uh, at my blog, eatingasia.typepad.com. Okay. And I will link to all of these things. So, all right. Thank you again, Robin. Thanks for having me on the show, Sarah. Well, I am ready to go back to Turkey for some hummus and cement and also grilled cheese. But what I love most about this interview is Robin saying that she was this close to getting her PhD and then said that my heart is not in this. And even though she put in years of work, she knew that cutting her losses and pursuing her curiosity for food and writing would lead to something more satisfying and meaningful for her. Lost time is never found again. Ben Franklin said that. All right, I've included Robin's food recommendations on postcardacademy.co slash turkishfood. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. Though I guess this is now called Apple Podcasts, I'm not sure that rebrand has caught on. If you'd like to reach me, you can email me at sarah at postcardacademy.co or find me on Instagram at postcardacademy.co. 
That's all for now. Thanks for listening and have a beautiful week wherever you are. Hey, let's continue the conversation. Head on over to my blog on Substack for more content on how to thrive through better communication, stoicism, and global exploration. That is right. Blogging is cool again over on the Substack platform. There you can chat with me in the comments, and I have plenty of bonuses for paid subscribers, or you can just read for free. So click the link in the episode notes to access the Substack Live Without Borders.